If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. This is week 6 of our series through the book of Acts called The Mission to Save the World. As is our custom, not only do we worship God by singing together and by giving and through fellowship, but we also worship Him by responding to a proclamation from His Word. We believe that when the, the Scriptures are rightly preached, God speaks, and when God speaks, uh, we would be well served to listen. Uh, we're looking at this incredible true story of God's grace flooding the known world through the proclamation of the gospel as miracles are being formed, Christ is being preached, and lives are, and entire cities are being transformed by the power of the gospel. Uh, in between my freshman and sophomore years of college, I returned home to Dayton where I grew up and where my family lived, and I worked as a server at a Mexican restaurant in Dayton uh, called Casa Lupita. And it was a very upscale Mexican restaurant, and I worked there because I knew that was going to be more advantageous financially than, than working sort of for an hourly wage, and so uh, I waited tables. One of the things that set us apart as a restaurant was the servers were required to memorize all the orders, so we couldn't carry anything to write with. Um, well, you know, this, this was supposed to make for a more intimate dining experience, but what it really made for was a very stressful group of servers. Um, you know, as it sometimes works in restaurants, you know, you might go 15, 20 minutes without any activity, and then uh, it would happen where I was triple sat. I get a four-topper and a six-topper and then a party of eight, and I had to go to all these and memorize all their orders. Um, and I still remember many times I would go and I would take the order, and I would very sort of slyly rush to the register, the computer, so I could put in the order so I wouldn't forget. And I remember getting to the register thinking, now, what was, was that a beef chimichanga? Or was that a chicken chimichanga? And did she say no tomatoes on her chalupa, or did she say no olives? Sadly, I, I found out what happens to someone who says no olives and is allergic to olives and gets olives. Um, I would sometimes forget the order. And so, again, this caused a bit of stress. And even sometimes, my own daughter can attest to this as someone who, who serves at a restaurant, sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would just wake up in a panic thinking, I forgot to bring him his drink. I forgot to bring her her appetizer, whatever it was. Sometimes when we're so thinly stretched, important things and even very good things can be forgotten or neglected. And such is the case with this new church, a fledgling church. The church of Jesus Christ is not even a year old yet, really not even months old, and already... Uh, there's some, something, or really more specifically, someone is being neglected. So the disciples, this is actually the first time in the book of Acts we see the followers of Jesus being referred to as disciples. The disciples have an issue to deal with. Now, there are two scenes in this chapter, and you might think just by looking at them, how does this, how does this fit together? Um, I think there is a single theme we're intended to glean from these scenes, of course, among other things. And uh, so we're just going to have one point this morning. I know if you're a note taker, you're used to three points. Just one point this morning. I'm going to give it to you. This may be anticlimactic. I'm going to give it to you in just a second, then I'm going to explain both parts of it. So here's the point that we'll make from the passage this morning. Faithfulness to God's design, the way of freedom, produces spiritual fruit and provokes opposition from the religious. So faithfulness to God's design, the way of freedom, it produces spiritual fruit and provokes opposition from the religious. Now, when I talk about the religious, I'm talking about those who have devised their own schemes, they're trusting in their own ways, 
their own ability, their own obedience, their own sacrifice, whatever it is, to get to God. I don't know if I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. Maybe I did, but I was, I was kind of shocked when I read R.C. Sproul right before he died, which is fairly recently. Um, he said, after years, decades of study, he said, the one thing I've concluded most certainly about God is God hates religion. All of our efforts, all of our scheming, all of our attempts to earn our way to God. So what we're going to see is when God's ways are followed, when His wisdom is embraced, when His instruction is heeded, when His salvation is rightly understood, it results in two things. It produces spiritual fruit, but it also provokes opposition from the religious. The fruitfulness, especially the freedom that God's people enjoy, it doesn't sit well with everyone. Not everybody likes it. In fact, when, when the religious see God's people experiencing freedom, spiritual rest, confidence in God's love, it infuriates them. They want them to be under the same yoke of slavery that they're under. So they'll make every effort to bring down the truly free. But even in the midst of opposition, God is continuing to work out His plan, fulfilling the plan He's had from beginning the world. From beginning of time before the world was made. So we're going to cover all of uh, chapter 6 this morning. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 7. Here reads the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, "'It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables.' Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came, became obedient to the faith. Have you ever had, heard someone say, you know, that's one of those good problems to have? You know, maybe you've been trying to lose weight, and you lost so much weight that none of your clothes fit anymore, so you have to go buy new clothes, and they say, well, that's a, that's a good problem. Maybe the flip side is true for you. You've been working out so much, you've been lifting weights so much that you find that all your t-shirts are too tight, something that's never happened to me, uh, but I've heard of it. In fact, I know we have a couple young men at our church who are dealing with this very issue. Maybe you, you have too many invitations to the prom, and you say, well, this is a, this is a good problem to have. Or like when you, you're so stylish that everybody wants to imitate you. So you say, well, I, I, I like the fact that people are imitating me, but I don't like the fact that everybody's trying to look just like me. Maybe you got too much cash to fit in your pocket. That's a good problem. Well, weeks into the church's existence, it was having one of those good problems. It had grown so much that there were thousands of people who had become followers of the way. And because so many people had been added to the church, so many families made part of this believing community, it created a bit of, a, of an administrative challenge, we might say, a bit of a, a management issue. What was happening is the, the church in those early stages was made up largely of Jewish converts, these were folks who had uh, initially rejected Jew Jesus as the Messiah, but they had heard the preaching of the gospel, 
They've been brought to saving faith in Christ, and they had been baptized into the believing community, the church. The church was basically divided into two groups. There were the Hellenists. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews who were part of the diaspora. That just means they were scattered during the time of war. They had been, they'd, they'd departed from Jerusalem, and then now, generations later, they had come back to Jerusalem and become followers of Christ. So these were the Greek-speaking Jews known as the Hellenists. Just read about those in, in verses 1 and 2. And the other group that was kind of in competition with them in a way was the, what we call the Hebrews. The Hebrews were, they spoke Semitic languages. They spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, and, and they had never left Jerusalem. So they had been in Jerusalem the whole time. And so they took great pride in the fact that they had remained faithful to the great city, faithful to the temple customs. And so there was a bit of hostility between these two groups of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Well, again, the, the, the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, were complaining that their widows, moms and, and occasionally dads who were part of the Greek-speaking community, had lost and lost their children. They weren't being cared for. They weren't receiving the daily distribution. Now, sometimes we, we tend to believe that ethnic and cultural strife or tension in the church is something new. It's a new problem, but in fact, it goes all the way back to the very beginning where lines were drawn and camps were established, so to speak. Uh, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach writes this, that the problem broke out among ethnic lines is not surprising, as most relationships would have been affected by these distinctions. The community is aware, however, that such distinctions cannot be maintained and supported in a community that confesses a Messiah who has come to give God's grace to all types of people. So they realize, okay, something has to be done to make sure that, that everybody is cared for. And now we're going to, in just a few weeks, we're going to come across, well, the Apostle Paul, he's named Saul at the time, but in his writings in the New Testament, he will make it very clear and reiterate that God does not tolerate, God does not allow for distinctions or uh, preferential treatment within the church because of ethnic or cultural differences. And so they, they realized that the earliest disciples realized something had to be done, so they came up with this solution, moved by the Holy Spirit. They, they kind of institute the official function, the official role, if you will, of deacon. Look at verse 2 again. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The, the phrase to serve is the Greek word diakonein, which is the verbal, uh, it's, it's the verb form of the word deacons. The disciples' solution to this exponential growth was to actually get the congregation together, we might call them the members of the church, have them set before the disciples, men of good reputation, and they would appoint, they would choose from those men and appoint some to, quote, serve tables. This is they would take care of the benevolence ministries. The, they would take care of uh, the administrative and the mercy functions of the church. These men would be the first deacons. In fact, as I mentioned, the Greek word for deacon, diakonos, means server. More broadly, it means table waiter. So while the pastors and elders are called to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, the deacons are tasked with taking care of the needs of the church, whatever needs may arise. And I have to say, uh, at Capshaw, we have incredible deacons, just phenomenal, servant-hearted, 
sacrificial deacons. They oversee the benevolence ministry. That is when someone you know, has a financial need, loses a job, health concern, whatever it is, they oversee the benevolence ministry. They take care of our widows. Every widow has a deacon who is served uh, by that deacon. They, they look after the facility, some of the administrative needs. In fact, if you pulled into the church parking lot last Sunday and you came in by way of the, I guess it would be the northwest entrance, you notice that because of the snow and the plows, there was all kinds of, I don't know what else to call it, but rubble, right? Big, big uh, pieces of rock and asphalt that had been torn up. And so uh, Pastor Adam emailed the deacons and said, hey, guys, can we, you know, to make it easier for people to get in, can we get this taken care of? And within minutes, one of the deacons said, I'll handle it. And by the end of the day, it was handled, totally handled. And so our deacons are, are eager to serve the church and to take care uh, of those needs. So elders lead and shepherd the church through prayer and the ministry of the word. Deacons serve the church by addressing the needs that arise. Now you might think, well, why shouldn't the elders focus their attention on handling the administrative needs of the church? And the answer is, they must remain free to preach and teach and administer the Word of God. This passage is not about creating some sort of ontological hierarchy where some people are better than another, more valuable than another. Of course not. This is about the centrality of the Word of God in the life of the church. I mean, look, there, there's value to informational lectures. There's value to, to seminars and, and TED Talks. And me personally, I'm a sucker for a good motivational speech. All of those things have value, but none of those things has the power to change a person at the soul level. None of those things has the power to restore people who are broken, to bring healing to the hurting, to bring life to the dead. Only the Word of God, the, the, the grand story of redemption, God's work in restoring a broken world through the person of His Son has that sort of power to change individuals, families, and even entire cities. The ministry of the Word of God, the preaching and the teaching of the Word, is so important that it cannot be sidetracked by even very good things. Uh, I read this week, I was kind of stunned to read this week that it's largely uh, regarded and, and understood that in 2021, more pastors will resign than in any recent year by a huge margin. Some of it's COVID-related stress, some of it's whatever, fatigue, exhaustion. But most of those pastors will probably resign because they're expected to do a thousand things. Now, this is disheartening when you consider last year, in 2020, some 17,000 pastors resigned, totally left vocational ministry altogether. And some of that has to do with the fact that some pastors are expected in their churches to do everything. In fact, I had a lady who came up to me in between services and said, my dad was a pastor and he was expected to do everything, fix everything, take care of all the needs, be at every house, every visit, whatever it is. Well, this, this does not make it possible for the shepherds to focus the bulk of their time on prayer and ministry of the Word. I'm super thankful for our elders. You know, Thursday is one of my main study days. If I get an email on Thursday morning and I don't reply to it to, from one of our elders till Friday morning, and I say, hey, sorry, I didn't get back with you. You know, Thursday is my study day. They're not discouraged by that. They're encouraged by that. They want me to spend time in the Word, studying the Scriptures, praying for God's people. I'm thankful for that. The Word of God must be central to everything we do. Our preaching must be from the Bible. Our teaching from the Bible. 
The way we pray is informed by the Bible. Our discipleship is rooted in the Bible. We make decisions based on the Bible. The same word that gives life to the church also shapes the life of the church. And those who are called to teach and preach the word must be free to devote themselves to this task. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, that that elders don't serve, and it doesn't mean that deacons can't teach. Our elders serve. They're involved in people's lives. A couple Saturday nights ago, two weeks ago, I guess, I was in the hospital Saturday night visiting someone who was dying from a COVID-related disease and a bunch of things. And so I put the gown on, and I had the mask on, and I had everything on, totally covered. And I went in and prayed with this man, and he he would succumb to death not long after that. So we're serving people. And we have deacons who are terrific teachers who handle the Word well, but the point is that the the Word of God must remain central, and those who are called to teach and preach must have the requisite time for the task. So not only does this passage serve as kind of an indication of the organization of the church, but there's something bigger going on, I think, and that is because these disciples follow God's design, prompted by the Holy Spirit. Not only were the widows taken care of, which I'm sure was an encouragement to the Hellenists, but also we're told that the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Even some of the pagan priests, even some of the priests who had rejected Christ came to faith. So again, this was not only encouraging, but it gave greater confidence to all the believers that when God's design is followed, spiritual fruit is born. And it's not just, the, not just this way in the church. It's not just this way in ministry. It's in every aspect of our life, in our marriages, when we serve one another sacrificially, when we care for one another, when we submit to one another in humility, when we, when we assume the best about one another. What happens is a, a love is born from that, and a love grows, and it's deepened, and people who are watching our marriages get to see but a glimpse of the gospel. When, when we love each other exclusively in marriage, and that covenant is exclusive, it gives people a picture of God's exclusive relationship with His people. It's like this in parenting. When God's ways are followed, when His designs are followed, it bears spiritual fruit. When we love our kids unconditionally, and they know there's nothing they can ever do to lose our love, or to, so that our love would be taken from them, they become confident in that relationship, and they live with us openly and they share things with us and they trust our leadership. It's like this in any relationship. When relationships are characterized by, again, sacrifice and when we, when we forgive and we confess our sins to one another rather than taking revenge and so on, our relationships enjoy a sort of spiritual depth. Bob Kellerman calls it a spiritual friendship that's unlike any other, other friendship. So when we follow God's design, we see spiritual fruit. Now, sometimes it's The fruit is hard to see, and sometimes we don't see fruit for weeks or months, but God brings about the spiritual fruit. Now, look at the second scene of this chapter, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen was one of the seven chosen to be a deacon, and he was not only serving the church, but preaching and administering the Word of God. He was performing miracles, and the miracles that he performed by the Spirit of the risen Christ got the attention of those who belonged to what was known as the freedmen, the synagogue of the freedmen. But it was what Stephen was saying that put them over the edge. Now, the freedmen had the most ironic name of any name in the Scriptures. Uh, these, were, these were descendants of folks who had been taken captive by Pompey in the eight, about 63 years before Christ. And so they had been exiled, they had been taken as slaves, and here they are 66 years later, and they were free. They had been granted their freedom. They were no longer under the oppression or the tyranny of human masters. But they were still enslaved, greatly enslaved to the law. In other words, they believed by keeping all of God's commands, by doing everything that God said, by trying with their utmost sincerity, that that would be enough to grant, to gain them entrance into God's heaven. They believed that if they just tried hard, they were sincere in their efforts, and they stacked upon themselves rule upon rule, tradition upon tradition, which they all tried endlessly to keep, that they would earn God's favor. When they had rejected the only way that anyone can ever be right with God, and that is by believing in Jesus the Christ. I mean, these people were deeply devoted to the law. All the Jewish customs, they were trying with all their might to keep every last command. They went to the synagogue, they followed all the rituals, they did, they did everything the law required, or at least they thought they did. And again, they thought by their trying, they would somehow earn God's final approval. And here comes Stephen. He's performing miracles, he, he, he's garnering a huge following, but more than that, we're told in verse 8, he was full of grace, which by the way is an idiom for he was full of the gospel. You know what an, what an idiom is, an idiom is an expression that has been accepted as meaning something that it may not appear to mean on the surface. Of course, you know, we in the South, we, we have a lot of idioms, right? We, we have, I'm learning, I've learned in almost three years some of the very specific idioms and sayings that, that we have, and uh, I'm, I'm still learning. In fact, at Christmas time, I, I, I heard one that I'd never heard before. Um, this phrase, um, maybe you've heard this, butter my butt and call me a biscuit. Anybody know this one? You don't, you don't look like you do. I'd never heard it before. Um, and what it means is, I, you, I'm stunned. I, I'm shocked by what you just said to me. Butter my butt and call me a biscuit. So we, we have these, that's more of a saying, um, than an idiom, but we have these idioms, and here's one that's maybe more familiar. You might say about somebody that they live around the corner, when in fact maybe they're three quarters of a mile away. You can't just, it, but that's a, that's an idiom. Well, there are idioms in the scripture, along with all kinds of other figurative and, and devices. In fact, we're going to look at some of these in our class, the the understanding of the Bible. But one of the idioms we see throughout the book of Acts is that grace, the word grace, the term grace. Is, is an idiom or, or a synonym for the gospel. Author and professor Justin Holcomb writes this, 
in Acts, grace is parallel for the gospel or salvation. Jesus' message is summarized as the word of His grace. Believers are said to have received grace or to be full of grace. And they are challenged to continue in grace. This means to continue in the gospel. The missionaries in Acts proclaim the grace of God, and it is through grace, i.e. the gospel, that people are able to respond with faith. So why does that matter? Well, Stephen was a man who was committed to, enthralled by, full of, we might say, the gospel. This was his greatest offense. But actually, he was blameless. Now, it doesn't mean he was perfect. He wasn't perfect. But he had nothing, there was nothing of which he could be accused. There was no disqualifying mark about him, no glaring offense. And the synagogue members started to debate him openly. They realized that they, they, couldn't, re, they couldn't refute his argument. And so they just kind of throw up their hands and they start telling people to spread false rumors about him. They say, hey, I want you to say, you heard him say this. And I want you to go and tell the religious authorities, you heard Stephen say this. Now, actually, none of the stuff that they said he was saying was true, except he did say something about Jesus uh, restoring the temple. What he was saying was, he was saying, look, Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. He might have even said something like Peter had already said that incited so much vitriol. He might have said, this Jesus whom you killed, you're the one who killed him. God has raised him from the dead, which left them absolutely incensed. They were outraged and enraged, but they couldn't find a real accusation to stick because he spoke with wisdom and were told he had the Spirit. And I think it's worth asking the question, one that I fearfully asked myself this week, do people recognize the Spirit in us? Do people know and hear what you have to say? Is it confirmed with wisdom? Is it characterized by grace? How about your social media posts? Do people read what you post on social media and does it give evidence of the Spirit's guidance in your life? Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is. The text doesn't say that Stephen overwhelmed them with his superior intellect. It doesn't say that he, he destroyed them by owning them. It says that he overcame them by having wisdom and having the Spirit of God, which is the spirit of humility, grace, and wisdom. Well, what did they do? It says in verse 11 that they secretly instigated people. They stirred up the people, again, bringing false accusers against him, and ultimately they seized him. Again, they didn't have anything true to say about him that would actually uh, lead to this sort of uh, condemnation. But it was true what Stephen had said about Jesus. Jesus did say he would restore the temple and he would destroy it and, and restore it. But they twisted Stephen's words as some part of a grand conspiracy against Stephen. Now, we're going to find out next week uh, what exactly Stephen said and what happened to him as a result. But I do want you to note this. Please take note of this. What infuriated the religious people most, was that Stephen had the audacity to confront their religiosity. The message that they heard out of Stephen's mouth made them violently angry because it wiped away all their trying. It rendered 
useless, all of their efforts, all of the ways that they thought they had exceeded everybody else around them. You may recall from our study in John, and I don't expect you to since this was at the early part of John, which is we're talking about two years ago now, but you may remember Jesus going into the temple and overturning the, the, money ta- the changers' tables, opening the dove's pen, letting the doves fly, confronting the priests to their faces. And when they did so, they said, who do you think you are? Who are you to come in here and destroy our customs? And Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. They became angry and they gritted their teeth, their eyes filled with fire of rage. Now, a little bit later, John's disciples, Jesus' disciples will, will realize that Jesus wasn't talking about the actual building. Jesus was talking about His own body that would fulfill and overshadow all of the customs of Moses, all the traditions of the temple. His body would be destroyed and crushed under the weight of our sin, but He wouldn't stay that way. In three days, He would rise out of the ground, having defeated all the things that would leave us chained to all the customs of the law. Well, these people are so angry because, again, everything they'd worked for, Everything they had done that they believed separated them from everybody else around them, Jesus wanted to wipe away. It wasn't so much about what Stephen had done, again, that made them so angry. It was about what he was saying. Namely, that like the shadow is overcome by the substance, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. People talk a lot about cheap grace. They say, well, we got to be careful about cheap grace. Don't, don't talk too much about grace because people will disobey and they, they'll, they'll have freedom to sin or whatever. I think the greater problem is cheap law. And what I mean by that is it's, it's preaching the commands of Scripture and, and leaving people under the impression that they have the ability to satisfy all of God's requirements. You know, I, if I just try hard enough, I can get there. This is what Jesus would spend the bulk of His ministry confronting, this mindset, especially the Sermon on the Mount, where He says over and over, yeah, you think you're really righteous? You you think you're you're, uh, perfect before God? You think you've done enough? You've heard it say, but I say. You think you're righteous because you've never committed adultery? But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Yeah, you think you're so great because you haven't sworn by the temple? I say to you, unless you only say yes and no, you're you're going to violate God's commands by the way you speak. This is why C.S. Lewis would say, I don't really care that much for the Sermon on the Mount because it's like getting hit over the head with a sledgehammer. It's Jesus saying, the standard that God requires is not improvement. It's not sort of good moral behavior compared to everybody else. It's absolute and total perfection in word in deed, in thought, in motive, in everything we do. No matter how good we think we are, no matter how much good you think you've done, no matter how much money you've given, how many times you've come to church, how many people you've helped, how many soup kitchens you've served in, how many hours you've spent serving others, none of it can ever measure up to God's standard of perfection. Because every good work of ours has been stained by sin. I feel the pull, you know, just like everybody else. Say, Lord, I've I've been at church since I was a teenager. 
When you say me, I went to church, and I was at church four times a week some weeks. Sunday morning, Sunday night, training union, Wednesday night, sometimes five times evangelism. I feel the pull to say, look, I've been in church my whole life. I've never, I've never cheated on my taxes. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never killed anybody. I've never done any terrible thing like this. I'm giving my life to serve you. Like, surely that's enough, right? And God says, no, because of my holy, perfect, and glorious character, nothing but absolute perfection will be enough. But God has provided the very thing that He has demanded, perfect obedience in the person of His Son who lived for us, died as our substitute so that by faith in Him we could be found holy in God's sight with a righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness that is ours by faith. What Stephen was saying to these religious leaders was, if you'll, just, if you'll trust not in this temple, not in your good works, not in your obedience, not in the giving of alms, not in the doing of anything, if you'll trust in the body that was broken for you and raised three days later, His complete sacrifice to accomplish what you couldn't, then you'll be right with God. Then you can have hope. Then you can experience freedom. Then you can enjoy the fullest sort of life imaginable. Freedom is found in realizing that we have nothing of any good that we should think that would save us, but in Christ we have everything. Our good works are not what we hold up to God and say, look at me. Our good works are what we do in response to what God has done. So we're not, I'm not saying we're free from obedience to God's law. In fact, I've already made the point that, that God's law shows us the best way to live. It is the way of human flourishing. It shows us what pleases God because it reflects God's character and is best for us. But for those in Christ, we are free from the law's condemnation. As Britt sang so well this morning, we're free from both the, the, the wrath of God, the, power, the wrath of sin, the condemnation of sin and its tyranny, the rule of sin in our lives. We will never be judged by our obedience to the law's commands, never be condemned by our failure to keep the law. We will be judged by Christ's full and total obedience on our behalf. So we're free to obey Him from a place of acceptance rather than for His acceptance. We're already His. We belong to Him. He loves us. If you're in Christ this morning, God loves you with a love that will never change. His love for you is steadfast, immovable, never changing. And it doesn't, it doesn't vacillate, it doesn't fluctuate based on your performance day after day. His love is steady and secure in Christ. So you don't have to earn it. You already have it in Christ. And what this does is it allows us to live with joy and confidence and laughter, with a sure hope for our future, but freedom and laughter and the confidence of God's love for us, these are things that provoke opposition from the religious. Because there are always going to be people who, who insist that we have to add something else to the gospel. It's Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus tithing. It's Jesus plus church attendance. It's Jesus plus getting dressed up on Sunday. It's Jesus plus saying no to a bunch of things. No alcohol, no dancing, no whatever it is. It's Jesus plus all these things. Jesus plus anything is really the heart of religion. And God hates religion. 
But what God calls us to is a sort of freedom in Christ. Again, it's not a freedom to disobey. It's a freedom to love God and to obey Him from a place of a secure standing with Him. Jesus plus, again, that's the way of religion. But Jesus came to free us from the enslavement to religion. And with that, give us joy, again, the fullest life imaginable, laughter, the absence of guilt, the assurance of His love. Now, let me, let me show you what this looks like, and I'll close with this. I'm going to brag on my wife for a minute. When we first had arrived at a previous church, I'm talking about well over a decade ago. Of course, Janine was well-received and, and well-loved by just about everybody. There, was, there, were, there were a few people, there was a small group of people, they really didn't know what to do with her. They didn't know how, they couldn't understand her because, you know, she, was, she didn't claim to be perfect, didn't pretend to be perfect, didn't act like she had a perfect family. Didn't act like she had a perfect marriage. She was open about her own shortcomings and failures. There, there were people who just they didn't understand that. They said there were multiple people who said to her, "We've never been around a pastor's wife who's been so real. We, we, we've never seen this before." And so she was open about her own shortcomings, and yet at the same time, filled with laughter and love and joy, with a, with a real zeal for life. Well, she, she led this group of 20-something young women, and most of them young moms, and went through a whole study with them. And at the, year, at the end of the year, they all wrote individual cards to her. They put them in a, a little book. And, and one, of them, one of the young ladies, 23, 24, said something I'll never forget. She said about Janine, the freedom in which you live your life is addicting. It is a freedom that can only come from an understanding of grace. Religion brings with it exhaustion, the burden to constantly be right or to pretend that we're right, endless guilt, devastating shame, and really no hope for the future. Grace, the gospel, brings freedom. With an understanding of grace comes this recognition, our sins, yes, they are many. They're more than we even can count, but His mercy is always so much more. And this is the power and the beauty of the gospel which flies in the face of those who insist on getting to God on their own. But it's such a better way. It's the way of freedom. It is the way of joy. It is the way of laughter. It is the way of delight. It's the reason Jesus said, I came to give you the fullest life imaginable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the beauty and the power of the gospel. Thank you that Stephen had the courage to confront the religious hypocrites of his day and actually embody to them what joy in Christ looks like. And he didn't just live in a certain way. He also proclaimed the good news of the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. That I pray that you would cause the gospel to sink in. I pray that you would enable us to believe the gospel in such a way that, yeah, we're aware of our past sins, and we know what we've done. We know how we've failed. We know how we've blown it. We know how we've, we've rebelled against you. But that's not the whole story. You sent your son so that we could be completely and totally forgiven for all of those sins, made right before you. God, will you help us to believe, as the writer of Hebrews has said, that the sins we, rem we remember... You remember no more. Give us the grace to delight in that. 
Give us a confidence in the gospel that would stir our hearts to tell others to gladly obey you, to worship you, to give generously, to sing your praises in spirit and truth. And Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.